It's great to see you. I think I said this exact line at Easter. I said at the time, I was like, this is an Easter like no other. And now here we are, and I need to say, this is a kickoff like no other, hey? And just anticipate it. I'll probably get up here on Christmas Eve and say, Christmas Eve like no other, hey? So we are just kind of in the thick of that. We're going through the seasons here. And so it is a kickoff like no other. I mean, I look like Bane from Batman in the baptism video. It's just, these are different days. I never anticipated a time where I would baptize someone in a mask. Here we are. Um, That being said, masks aren't really the point. Baptizing followers of Jesus is the point, and so we celebrate it nonetheless. And I just want to give you a quick word about kickoff as, as we get going in the sermon today. Don't be fooled. Jesus wants wants to use this season, this kickoff and, and this season of ministry. You know, it, we can't gather in the same ways we're used to. Doesn't mean God can't move. <laughs> we can't do things the same ways and have some of the same uh, ministries as we did in other seasons, and yet that doesn't limit Jesus. I, I want to tell you, remind you if you need to hear it, that Jesus wants to work in your life this fall. And Jesus wants to work in our church this fall, and, and Jesus uh, wants to work through us in being a blessing to our community this fall even in these times. We're embarking on a sermon series called Church on Fire that's in the book of Acts. And my my grandfather was a pastor his whole adult life. And at one point, he was the pastor of a church called Benton Street Baptist Church in Kitchener, Ontario. And one day, he was working in his office, and this 14-year-old, this this teenage boy, rushed into his office and said, part of the church is on fire. So my grandpa got up and ran with him, and this teenager brought him to a room where there were a bunch of stacked chairs that were engulfed in flames by this point, and so many flames that, that he, he couldn't stop it. And so uh, they called the fire department, and they got everybody out. And it's interesting because the night before, the elders had been meeting, and they were trying to figure out, like, what do we do? The church is getting a little too tight. We need to expand, but that's complicated. And one of the elders mentioned, you know what the easiest thing would be? To take a match to this place, let it burn, collect the insurance money, and rebuild and so hours later, as my grandfather stood a ways back and watched Benton Street Baptist Church burn to the ground as firefighters tried to save it, that elder walked up to him and right up near his ear and said, forget everything I said last night, and like slipped away. <laughs> Turned out it was the 14-year-old boy. He had committed a number of arsons in the community, and they caught him on that one. Um, but uh, it's interesting, you know, ask my grandpa from that point on in his adult life if, about church on fire, the first thing that would go to his mind was that church on fire. We're embarking on a series in the book of Acts that's probably going to take us a few years. We'll take some breaks along the way and study some other things over the course of the next few years, but we're going to walk through the book of Acts. And when you hear the words church on fire, I hope that you will think about this little band of disciples that became empowered by the Holy Spirit and really set the world aflame. The known world at the time, they they traversed sharing Jesus and building the church. 
If we pick up from where we were last week, we, we, we saw Jesus say, you will receive power to his disciples when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascended into the heavens and they watched him go where he remains to this day, seated at the right hand of the Father bodily, where he intercedes for us, where he's our great mediator, where he's ruling and reigning. That's Jesus and he ascended that way and then a couple guys robed in white, we're going to assume these are angels, come to the disciples and they say, why are you looking up there? He's going to return the same way. But in the meantime, go about what he called you to do. Jesus instructed them to go and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then go and be his witnesses. And so we pick it up there and... And so we see them in verse 14, it says, what do they do? They devoted themselves to prayer. In the book of Acts, prayer is mentioned a lot. It's mentioned 30 times. It's mentioned in 20 of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts. What we learn very early on in our reading of this incredible book is that the early church was a church that prayed. And so within the first chapter, we see that this is a group of people devoted in prayer. Now, let's talk about being devoted to prayer a little bit. If you're anything like me, and I'm not going to assume you are, I'm not going to put that on you, but if you are anything like me, you find prayer challenging. And I've talked with many of you over the years, and at some point you mentioned something about prayer being a challenge for you. And so that's the case for many of us. There's probably a few in the room and there's probably a few watching a handful of you that wish you could clear your whole schedule and just pray and just be devoted to prayer. The rest of us will not try to like sin in like an envy way of you, but you're rare. For a lot of us, we're really challenged. We find it difficult to pray. So I want to dig into that a little bit. Why is devotion to prayer hard? Why do we find it hard? Let me list a few reasons. This isn't exhaustive, but here's a few. I think slowing down is hard for us, for one. One reason prayer is hard for us, why devotion to prayer is hard for us, is slowing down is hard for us, right? We are used to, we live in a culture that has a frenetic pace of life. Not only that, slowing down is hard for us, silence is hard for us. They kind of go hand in hand, but, but we... We live in a time of constant distraction, and we like it that way, and our brains and our eyes are kind of used to it that way. It's not, it's not normal anymore to just watch a show or a movie or a game. You also have a second screen where you're checking social media or reading an article. We live in such a time of frenetic pace and um, constant distraction that we usually have multiple screens going. So there's never a moment. So, so we're not used to silence. We fill that noise. We fill that with noise. We're not used to slowing down. We, we just keep things frenetically moving. That makes it difficult to be someone devoted to prayer. But digging a little deeper, we're not always sure what to pray. I think part of the challenge for being devoted in prayer is that we're not sure what to pray. You know, maybe, maybe the deep desire is, well, I want to be biblically faithful, and I, 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 like, I don't know what the faithful thing to pray is here. Or there's a situation in our lives that confuses us, and we want to pray, but we're like, I don't even know what the thing is I should pray in this situation. And it keeps us from devoting that thing in prayer. Additionally, we're not 
always convinced that prayer makes a difference. I think that this is a really kind of practical, in the dark recesses of our heart kind of thing, where it's like, is it going to make any difference? And, and maybe it comes from past experience where we prayed desperately, where there were seasons of devotion to prayer, praying, hoping for a particular outcome, asking God for it, and then it, it felt like God never showed up or God never answered the prayer. And so we can conclude, well, does prayer really make any difference? That's something that can keep us. All of these are di- things that can keep us from being devoted in prayer. Timothy Keller said something helpful when he, when he wrote, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. I, I think that's helpful for us in some of the confusion we have about prayer. I'm not sure if it's going to make any difference. I don't, I don't what's the point? But, but when we just come to him and pray and bring it to him, not even sure we know what to pray or what the outcome should be, but bringing these things to him, resting in the fact that God knows best, we can trust him in it. And leading to that, I want to add some reasons to be devoted to prayer. I want to make a little case for that. What we see, it's, it's descriptive. It's describing that they were devoted to prayer. But, but I think it's prescriptive for us as well. Like I said, this is a church on fire. We're, we're going to see some things in the next number of weeks as we look at the first few chapters of Acts that are absolutely going to blow our minds. And we need to be mindful that this was a church devoted to prayer. These things happened in light of, yes, the Spirit coming, and also a people committed to praising God and praying to God. And so we want to learn from this. I would advocate for being people devoted to prayer. Here's a few reasons why. First, Jesus instructs and teaches us to pray. Jesus' disciples, during the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, they actually ask him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And Jesus' response is, when you pray, pray like this. So he instructs us to pray. He doesn't say, if you pray. He says, when you pray, expecting that disciples pray. And then he says, pray like this. And he gives something of a model, something of a template. doesn't matter if we say the exact words, but our Savior is giving us something of a model for how we could, how we can pray when he's asked that he teach us. He gives us a template for prayer life. And it really should correctly be called the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer, because it's a prayer that he invites us to pray. So first, Jesus instructs and teaches us to pray. Second, Jesus modeled devotion to prayer. He doesn't just teach it and tell us to do it. He did it himself. Just one example of that is in Luke 5, verse 15. It says, great crowds gathered to hear. Do you guys remember great crowds? Okay. (laughs) Great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed. That sounds like amazing ministry, right? Great crowds, they wanted to hear Jesus, so they came. They wanted to be healed by Jesus. They wanted to be ministered to by him, so they came. Great crowds. But listen, great crowds came. They gathered to hear him and be healed. And then it goes on, but he would, Jesus would, withdraw to desolate places and pray. Would. This was routine for him. The great crowds came, wanted to hear him, wanted to be healed. He would slip away to desolate places. It's the same word for deserted places, lonely places. And Jesus would frequently do this. So Jesus instructs and teaches us to pray. He also modeled devotion to prayer. Here's another reason. Prayer changes us. Have you found that in your life when you've given yourself to prayer? 
It's not so much, did Jesus answer my prayer, but as I spent time in prayer, I was drawn to the person of Jesus. Prayer changes us. It changes our posture. It changes our heart. It changes how we view our Savior and our Heavenly Father. Something interesting happens. Prayer leads to trust in Jesus. When we pray, we grow in trust in Jesus. And when we trust Jesus, we go to him in prayer. It's a fascinating thing. And so here we have the early church, these disciples, and along with the apostles' confidence, this confident anticipation that the Holy Spirit was coming, along with that came trusting prayer. They waited on him in prayer. See, prayer does a work in us. It's a reason to be devoted to prayer. And fourth, again, this isn't exhaustive, but just a handful of things I'd I'd like to say. Fourth, prayer changes not just us, it changes things. Said another way, prayer makes a difference. It really does. Let me me give you kind of a theological sentence here. You ready for it? Here's what what prayer is. Prayer is a God-ordained means that achieves his sovereign ends. Let me explain that. Sometimes we get ourselves into trouble and we're like, well, God's sovereign. God's in control of everything, right? So why even pray? He's just going to do what he does. His ways will work out. So he's sovereign. Why bother praying? Why bother witnessing? He's sovereign. He's in control. He'll just do it. Well, the reason is, is because a God-ordained means to achieving his sovereign purposes is us going and telling, and then people come to Christ. He ordains it that way. He ordains that we would pray and we would seek him and then he would gladly answer those prayers while also sovereignly accomplishing his purposes. So is God sovereign? Yes. Does prayer actually make a difference? Yes. Amazing. I'd love to talk about that for another hour, but only three of you would appreciate that. Let's move on. Look, the Bible says, do you need wisdom, for example? Then pray for wisdom. So so it makes a difference. Do you need wisdom in a situation in your life? Come to him in prayer and he will give you wisdom. Is there someone in your life you want to see come to Jesus? Pray for their salvation. Pray for God-ordained opportunities just that come out of the blue almost, that they initiate or something happens where you get to talk about Jesus with them, the gospel with them, and pray for the leading of the Holy Spirit in you and in the circumstance. You know, it's interesting. I, I just want you to notice this. The instruction for the disciples that they would go and wait. We're told that they're to go from the Mount of Olives where they were, a Sabbath day's journey to this upper room. I'm not sure if it's the upper room where Jesus washed feet and instituted the Lord's Supper. Not sure. It doesn't clarify. But they go a Sabbath day's journey. That doesn't mean that Jesus ascended on the Sabbath or that their journey back was on the Sabbath. It's a Jewish way of saying they walked one a max, the maximum 1.2 kilometers that you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath before 1.3 became work. I, I try to be really, really faithful to the scriptures. I try not to walk more than 1.2 kilometers any day of the week, not just the Sabbath. I just try, you know, super faithful. <laughs> so, so there they go. They're going to the upper room and they're to wait. That's the instruction. But what do they do? Yes, they wait, but it's not an inactive waiting It's an active waiting. How are they found to be? The end of Luke's gospel, Luke's the writer of Acts, so he picks up at the end of Luke's gospel after the ascension, we are told that they were constantly praising God at the temple courts. 
And then we read in Acts 1 where, where Luke picks up the story and carries on that they were devoting themselves to prayer. These aren't at odds with each other. It just means that they were praising and praying. They would go to the temple and praise Jesus as they waited. And they would go to the upper room and they would be devoted to prayer as they waited. It was this active waiting. If I have to go wait in a waiting room somewhere, let me just tell you, it's a super inactive waiting. Do I accomplish anything purposeful? No. I just wait. I twiddle my thumbs. I get distracted. Their waiting is so effective They want to use it to honor Jesus and seek him in prayer. We kind of are in that moment ourselves. There's something of an inactive time we are in. We can't do a lot of the things we could do in in normal circumstances outside of the pandemic. We're limited, spending a lot more time at home. We're seeing far less people doing far less things. In many ways, it's an inactive time, but I want us to learn from these disciples. It doesn't mean that we should be found inactive. There is an active waiting. If you look back at the last six months and all that's going on in the world that you might be burdened about, or the fact that maybe there's some fear or some nervousness or some boredom, has that, has that led you in the last six months during the pandemic to pray more? As you reflect, have you been praying more? If you have, fantastic. I think it's one of the things God wants to do in this time. If you haven't, that's okay. But there's still the opportunity in the waiting to wait like these disciples, devoted in prayer. And let me tell you, Jesus uses that. He uses that mightily and wants to do it again. But I skipped a section when I said that they were devoting to prayer. The first half of verse 14 says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. This this phrase, with one accord, uh, really stresses their unity, their togetherness. And, And I don't know at first blush if you notice how staggering an image that is. Let me explain it to you. Because in verses 12 through 14, it's listing the people in the room. So let me, let me tell you who it is. There, there's the 11 apostles. The 12 disciples became the 11 apostles. Judas betrayed Jesus and died. We're going to talk about that next week, unfortunately. Uh, and so they're at 11 apostles, but they're going to add another and have 12 apostles. But the 11 apostles are in the room. These are the same guys who were the disciples of Jesus who would argue about trivial things like who would get the best spot by Jesus. Like who, seating positions, they would argue about. But here they are in one accord, unified. It says the women were there. Now Luke makes a big deal about the women in Jesus' ministry, followers of Jesus who were there at key times, names them a lot. And so we have an idea of who these women are. They're at the foot of the cross during the crucifixion, the first to discover the empty tomb. And here they are devoted in prayer. The women are united. They're unified. And that's really amazing. I I don't have time to get into all the details, but we know in the room there were women from Jerusalem, so there were women from the city. But we know that there were women from Galilee, so we know that there were women from rural areas. Have you seen a lot of like downtown Vancouver hope women hanging out? And you get the sense unified, totally on the same page. But not only that, there were rich women and there were poor women unified, different social classes, unified. 
Not only that, there were younger women and older women, unified. Single women and married women, unified. At least one former prostitute in the room, unified with all the other women. Not one woman throwing her shade. Unified. Unified. And then, this is amazing, the brothers of Jesus were there. So are you seeing the picture with me? Siblings. Unified. Siblings unified. We, we see that Jesus, they've been named in other places, probably had these four brothers who were there. One of them is James. He writes the book of James. Potentially one wrote the book of Jude, Judas, a brother of Jesus. And they're unified. And interestingly, in John 7, verse 5, during Jesus' earthly ministry, they didn't believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe he was the Son of God. They just thought he had like an eldest complex. He thinks he's the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. But no, that's not what's going on. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But something happened at some point during the crucifixion, probably after the resurrection and Jesus appearing. They get saved. They follow Jesus, and here they are, unified with all of the women and with the 11 apostles. I think this has a ton of application for us because there are a thousand things that could divide us. A thousand things. I could divide me and you, that it could divide you and some others in our church. A thousand things could divide us. Let me just say the word politics. Like, right, like there's so many things, ideologies, social issues, national issues, not to mention some of the familial challenges, not to mention some of the the differences in theological positions, and yet we have to recognize that was also in this exact room, and they were unified. There are a thousand things that could divide us. But there was one bigger, greater thing that could unify him. And he has a name, and it's Jesus. Jesus brings the church together. Does the Holy Spirit dwell in you? Then you can be unified with anyone who has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them because you have Jesus in common. One of the best pictures that I can find in the scriptures that paints this is in Ephesians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, it's talking about Gentiles, non-Jews, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, have been brought close. He's drawn you in through the blood of Jesus, through his substitutionary work. It says in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. For who? the Jew and the Gentile, collectively their peace, who has made us both one, two different, very different people, one, and has broken down, I love this line, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between all of us through his finished work on the cross. Jesus died for you, Jesus died for me. Jesus gives me grace, Jesus gives you grace. Jesus transforms your heart, Jesus transforms my heart. Jesus gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit together, and we can be one. Jesus himself becomes our collective peace and creates a new unified people out of old, hostile camps. 
in the um, Temple Mount area where people would worship, there was an outer court for the Gentiles and there was a sign on it and it would say, uh, your death will be your own fault if you cross this line. If, if they would go from the outer court of the Gentiles any closer, their death, the sign said, would be on their own hands because they weren't the right people. But you know what the gospel does? It takes all the wrong people and makes us one because Jesus was the one who brings us together. And I think that that's an important word for us in this season, that we would be devoted to prayer together and that we would be one, that we would be unified, that we would have Jesus in common. Would we have some differences about all kinds of things? Yeah, but it's like, but we have Jesus and he trumps all, he rises above, we have him in common and it's enough. What we see in this little text is that prayer Unity and persistence. These are all really hard things, but they're good things that the early church pursued. And a church on fire is a church devoted to Jesus, a church praying to Jesus, a church unified in Jesus, and a church empowered by Jesus. May that be the case among us this year. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you so much for your grace for your kindness to us. God, thank you for making us a family, a church family. Thank you for, 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 for so many storylines. We heard eight of them in the baptism stories, but there's so, so, so many more. We all have different pasts, a lot of times different perspectives, but you've called us to be a church family together and you unify us, you make us one. Oh, Lord, I pray you would do that work among us. I pray that you would make us not an inactive people, but an active people, no matter the season. So, Jesus, I pray your spirit would move, that you would empower your church, and that we would be your witnesses for your fame and glory. Amen.